text this morning comes from the book of John. And if you want to turn there in your pew Bible, it's, it's page 898. So John chapter 11. Um, and as you're turning there, um, I want to say it's, it's an honor to be back here again. Uh, uh, to uh, look at God's word with you, but more than that, to praise our Lord and Savior alongside you. Um, I had nothing to do with picking any of the the music for this morning, but um, you managed to pick some of my favorite hymns. The one after the sermon, Be Thou My Vision, uh, a good old Irish hymn. Uh, It's my favorite hymn, so uh, well done. Um, And uh, the one we sang earlier, I Sing the Mighty Power of God by Isaac Watts. He happens to be my favorite hymn hymn writer. He, uh, He also wrote a textbook on logic. And you might not think... Um, a logic teacher would be a great hymn writer because logic and and beauty don't usually go together in most people's minds. Um, But he understood that all truth is God's truth and that our minds and our hearts and reason and beauty and and all of it is found in Christ. And he expressed it in his hymns and in his writings and his teachings. Um, And so uh, that was brought home to me with this hymn and, and I wanted to mention that to you as well. But our text this morning from the book of John, verse 35, you might have looked ahead, as I sometimes do when I I get the bulletin, or you might just know this verse. Um, uh, You know, sit back and and get ready for this this reading. Uh, Make yourselves comfortable, because here we go. The text for this morning, John 11:35. Jesus wept. It's the word of the Lord. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. You've probably heard it. And as we read it again this morning, you might be thinking, okay, Jesus wept. I've heard that. That's good. So what? Um, I didn't pick the Old Testament reading for this morning, but again, it worked out perfectly. We read in Isaiah a picture of God's throne room. And imagine a, a room like this. A big, resonant hall with a throne at the front. And God speaks and the room shakes and it's filling with smoke and there's fire and angels and it's fearsome. And this is the God we serve. We have that description in Isaiah and we have that description in other places. God is powerful and he's awesome and he's terrifying and he's huge. And this is the God who became incarnate. And when we read in John, Jesus wept. I want you to hear this God... He's crying. The second person of our triune God, God incarnate, the God of all eternity, the creator God, the Savior, God wept. We have um, uh, uh, certain writings of the Presbyterian Church that, that guide our theology. One of those is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, question three of that catechism asks, what is God? Uh, and it gives kind of a dry definition, but it says uh, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That God cried. If this doesn't shock you, if this verse does not surprise you, you're missing something. 
This is, to my mind, one of the most shocking verses in Scripture. There should be a lot of shocks in Scripture. God does unexpected things. Jesus surprised a lot of people. He did unexpected things, but we should stop. This should surprise us. This God was crying. Now, this is the God we serve. This is the God we love. This is the one who we want to spend our eternity worshiping and fellowshipping with. So if for no other reason, when we read this verse, we should stop and think, I want to know something about God. What's going on here? I want to know God more. I want to know my Savior more. I want to know the one who I am supposed to be like more. But this verse also says something about us. And so we can look at God and say, I want to know him better. But we can also look at ourselves and say, I want to know me better. And this verse speaks to us as well. John Calvin, at the beginning of his Institutes, uh, speaks of knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And he says the two are so intertwined, it's hard to say which one leads to the other. If you want to know God, you are going to know yourself better. If you want to know yourself, you cannot help but know the one who created you. And we see that in this verse, these two words. Jesus wept. If you look back to the beginning of Genesis, um, you read that we are made in God's image after his likeness. So when God becomes incarnate and does something, that says something about you. We are made to be like him. Uh, In Romans uh, chapter 8, Paul writes that we are being conformed to the image of the Son. So we were made in God's image. God's people who are found in Christ are being changed into the likeness of Christ. And Paul also writes in, uh, I think it's in Ephesians and also 1 Corinthians, about imitating Christ. Copy him. The things you see Christ do, you do. Be like him. And so Scripture makes it very clear we are like him, we are being changed to be even more like him. And one of the, the ways God accomplishes that is by us copying him. So whether your curiosity comes just from saying, who is this God I serve? I want to know him better. Or whether your curiosity comes from saying, what does this mean to me? Why does it matter to me? This verse, these two words, the shortest verse, has something to say to each of us. So Jesus wept. Why? If you look here in this chapter, uh, verse 33, Jesus had traveled and he he arrived arrived at this scene and he saw his friend Mary. Verse 33 says this, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus saw people's pain. And it upset him. Again, think about that. Remember the description of of God on the throne in Isaiah. 
the king of all creation, holy uh, beyond our wildest imagination, powerful, all-knowing, this great God sees the pain of an individual. And he feels it too. Jesus empathized with humans. He didn't just look down and say, I sure am sorry that you feel bad. He felt bad with them. That's pretty shocking. Paul, uh, you might remember, tells us to weep with those who weep. That's not a condescension. That's not a, I sure am sorry for your loss. That is a, I am coming alongside you. I am taking part in this sorrow. When you hurt, I hurt. Because we are one body. And we see that here with Jesus. He came and he saw people crying and it hurt him. But skip down a couple of verses to verse 36. Immediately after Jesus wept. It says, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. Uh, Jesus experienced a loss. He saw the people's pain and he empathized with them. He, he cried alongside them. But Jesus felt loss. Something was not right and he experienced it. Again, that's pretty shocking stuff. This is God. He knows what's going on. He planned everything. He's in control. And yet, he cried. So Jesus cried. He wept. He wept because people hurt. And he wept because something was not right. For him, death is not natural, and it's not good. Okay, so I want to make four observations relatively quickly. Um, although I, I should make this like the longest sermon ever, just because to preach on two two verses that would be really or two words that would be ironic. Um, but four observations. We're going to sort of go through this story. Uh, and see how Jesus' tears fit into it. If you turn back to the beginning of chapter 11, verse 4. Okay, so Jesus um, hears that Lazarus is sick. Word is sent to him. He hears that Lazarus is sick, and then verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This whole story is in the context of God's glory and Christ's glory, of revealing who they are and what they do. The whole point of all of history, of all of creation, is this. So this is set firmly in the context of what we know to be true. That God is worthy of praise, 
And God is bringing praise to himself by allowing these events to happen. We are always to be praising God. We are always to be thankful. Always. No matter what trial we face, no matter what is going on in our lives, everything is set in the context of God writing this story, the story of all of creation, to bring glory to himself. So when we experience sorrow, it's in the context of God's praise. But Jesus still cried. Think about that. If anybody understood that God has a bigger plan to bring about glory for himself and the good of his people, it was Jesus. And yet, he still cried. It's interesting how often people in crisis will uh, come to me and they will apologize for crying. They will feel guilty for being upset when they're hurt by circumstances. That's even more true of Christians. I know God is good, but this hurts, and so I should be paying more attention to God's goodness. That's true. We should praise God no matter what. But think about this. Jesus said, this is going to happen for God's glory. And then when it happened, it hurt. And he cried. If that does not give us permission to experience pain, even in the midst of our praise, then we're missing something. Skipping down a couple more verses. Verse 6. So when he, uh, that is Jesus, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was, was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. John just reports this, you know, as facts. He's just telling a story and, you know, Jesus gets the word and then he stays and for two days and then he goes. Think about that. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus. He gets word that he's on death's doorstep. And so what does he do? Absolutely nothing. This is God's plan. Jesus knew what he was doing. The disciples assumed he wasn't going because um, it was in an area where people wanted to kill him, which kind of happened a lot with Jesus. So the disciples just assumed, okay, he's sad, his friend is in trouble, but we're not going to go because they're going to kill him if he goes. So they don't question him staying, but we should. Remember, this is God. Jesus is in control of the universe. He hears his friend is ill. John tells us he loves his friend. And he says, this is going to glorify God, and so he does nothing. The death of Lazarus was not an accident. It was not an obstacle that he had to overcome. It was not circumstances that he responded to. It was his plan. When we run into difficult circumstances, it's God's plan. 
Now, that should be a comfort to us. But it doesn't stop things from hurting. Um, we, uh, our, our battalion did field exercises for a month last May. Um, we were up at Camp Shelby, um, you know, on an all-expense-paid camping trip. It was nice. And uh, in my position, I get to go uh, all the way from the, uh, the lowest enlisted person on the line all the way up to talking to the skipper. And their view of what our plan is is very different. Somebody uh, in a fighting position, uh, you know, with all their gear on when it's 105 degrees, has a very different view of what the plan is than the skipper does in the, the COC. Now, hopefully, the person uh, digging that fighting position knows that there is a plan. And that's good to know. When you are told to go out and do things and, and when you're facing situations, it's good to know that somebody somewhere knows what's going on. But then you go up a few ranks and it's even better to know what that plan is. That's even more comforting. But either way, pain is pain. Sometimes that plan hurts. So when we uh, take comfort in knowing that it is God's will for our lives that we face struggles, illnesses, deaths, hurts, know that it is his plan and that he is with you in it, but also know that it's okay to hurt. Jesus stayed for two days knowing that he would die because of it. He planned it. He did it on purpose, and yet he arrived and cried. Skip down a few more verses. At this point, uh, Jesus has traveled and his disciples uh, are uh, going along with him. He tells his, his disciples that Lazarus is dead, and he's going to awaken him. Or Lazarus has fallen asleep, and he's going to awaken him, and his disciples are like, well, that's really stupid. He's just asleep. Why do you need to go? Um, and they, of course, don't understand, uh, which is pretty much the theme throughout the Gospels of, of the disciples not understanding Jesus until after his death. Okay, so they don't understand, but Jesus goes anyway. Um, and Jesus in verse 14 and 15 says this, Lazarus has died, at which point you would assume the disciples get it. Oh, okay, he doesn't mean to sleep. Okay, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Okay, he has a purpose in this, and now he's starting to unveil his purpose. He's starting to explain why his plan is what it is. Skip down to uh, verse 25. In this case, he's speaking uh, to Martha. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
This is one of the great I am statements. But he's unveiling a little bit more of his purpose in this. Lazarus is a sermon illustration. Now, uh, you know, most preachers, when they have a sermon illustration, they just make up a story or tell some event that happened in their lives. Jesus, as God, illustrates his sermon with creation. Existence and God's words go together. Lazarus dying is Jesus' sermon illustration showing what it means that he is the resurrection and the life. People are looking forward to the end where there's a final resurrection, but Jesus says, here's a picture. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. This is what I came to do. I am the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus died so that you will see it and believe. Skip down a few more verses to uh, verse uh, 42. Actually, we'll start halfway through 41 with Jesus' words. Jesus is praying. It says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is saying a prayer for the benefit of the people listening. His purpose is being unveiled a little bit more. This whole event took place so that people would believe that he is who he says he is. He is life. The source of life. The hope of resurrection. He is the Savior. And then in verse 45, John gives us a report. He says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So this whole scene plays out for a purpose. For the good of those who were there. And because uh, in God's providence, he has John write this down. For the benefit of believers through all centuries. Lazarus died so that you might believe. And yet, Jesus cried. Think about that. He knew what he was doing. It was for a great purpose. It's um, uh, um, He doesn't even have to wait until the end of time. He doesn't have to wait to the end of the story, to the resurrection of the dead at the final judgment. He knows that this is about to happen. That many will believe. Many will be saved. Lives will be changed. History will change because of what he is doing right there. And yet he looks at the people's pain and he hurts. He looks at the tomb where his friend is and he cries. In Romans chapter 8, uh, 28... Probably know the verse, uh, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that that verse does not say that all things are good. We make that mistake sometimes, I think. He takes evil and brings good from it. He takes all sorts of circumstances, painful and um, joyous, and brings good from it. We see that in the story in the book of John. John 
tells us this story. Lazarus died, and many believe because of it. For thousands of years, believers understand that this Jesus is the Christ. He is the resurrection and the life because of Lazarus' death. And yet, the death of Lazarus is still bad. So it's an easy slip to make. Because so much good became, came of it, because this is God's plan, because Jesus accomplished this, we might start to think, well, it's good. It's, it's a good thing that Lazarus died so that Jesus could raise him and we could learn this lesson. But it's death is death. It is the curse of sin. It is the exact opposite of what Jesus came to do. Remember, Jesus is life. So we need to be careful that because God can take evil and bring good out of it, we must be careful never, never to call the evil good. If you think of Christ's death on the cross, you might think, that's a pretty good thing. And yet, take a step back. It's the betrayal and murder of someone. That's bad. The cross is horrible. It is the curse of God falling upon an innocent man. And yet God brings the greatest of good out of it. But murder is not good. Sin is not righteousness. There's a, a, a U2 song called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And they, uh, as a band, they've uh, hit or missed over the years. But this song is about life. And in that song, they're, they're talking about Jesus, saying, you know I believe. You know I believe. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's where we stand. Jesus came uh, and had this circumstance. His purpose was that many would believe, so that many would understand what it means that he is life. That he came to bring life, to give life, to save many people. And yet, we still haven't found it. We have a taste. We have a vision. We have a hope of this life. But our bodies are still racked by the curses of sin. This world is still torn apart by the curses of sin. We still look forward to the day when we will find the fullness of what Christ was talking about when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. We look forward to the day when his purpose is finally, completely accomplished. So until then, when we face hurt, we understand God has a good purpose in this. He's teaching us. He's shaping us. He's disciplining us. He's uh, encouraging us. He's changing us. What, he's accomplishing good, even through the pain. So know that, and then cry when it hurts. 
When you see somebody else hurting, encourage them. Say, God can accomplish good. Christ is faithful to you even in the midst of whatever struggle you're facing. And then cry with them. Longing for the day when you won't have to anymore. Look at verse uh, 11. says, after saying these things, he had just been teaching them. He said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Skip down to verse 23. Jesus is speaking to Martha. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then... um, Towards the end of the passage, um, Jesus appears before the, the tomb and uh, tells them to roll away the stone and commands Lazarus to come out. God's timing is not our timing. Is that fair to say? That my timetable of when I would like things to get accomplished is almost never when God's t- timetable is. Um, I'm one who likes to uh, have problems fixed almost immediately. Um, not, not because of some great uh, uh, scheme or hope of accomplishing things, just because I'm lazy and I don't like dealing with problems. And so when things hurt, I get very impatient and say, God, fix it now. Where are you? Those types of things. And yet God still, uh, to this point in my life, has refused to adjust his timetable to mine. We see that here in this passage. God's timing is not our timing. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus. And he also knew that Lazarus would die again. His friends understood that they were awaiting a final resurrection at the final judgment. We understand that too. So death for believers is in the context of resurrection. We know it's coming. But God's timing is not our timing. But think about that. Jesus is traveling to this place. He said, I'm going there to awaken him. He shows up and he sees uh, uh, a bunch of mourners crying. He sees his good friends, Martha and Mary, crying. They're upset. And he knows that he is about to fix the problem. And yet he cries anyway. Pain is real. And if you get nothing else from this sermon, get this. We serve a Savior who cares. And not just cares in a a platonic sense of some far-off God saying, it is bad that they hurt and so I will bestow upon them some good thing, but a God who is there in the midst of your pain and feels it alongside of you. A God who can identify with hurt and loss. A God who cares. We need to understand God's timing, that we await something better. We need to understand that God has a purpose in our pain. We need to understand that we should be glorifying God and that he will bring uh, goodness out of whatever we face. 
that should um, change the way we respond. That should change the way we look at things and how we talk to each other. We should encourage each other with these words, that God has a purpose, that God has a plan, that God will accomplish good. But we should also take a step back. When those words are said and hurt, cry with those who cry. Hurt with those who hurt. Give yourself permission to feel bad. Because um, for the people who hurt there, the two we know by name, Martha and Mary, they hurt. They were crying, and so they turned to Christ. They said, if you had been here, we know that this wouldn't have happened. You are able to do things. I believe what you say, that there is resurrection. Acknowledge pain. Call evil, evil. And then turn it over to Christ. The one who will cry alongside of you. There's nothing wrong with being needy. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging this life is not what you intended it to be. I want to look at uh, a few verses in closing. See my highly technical sermon notes here? Uh, If you turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Read the last three verses of chapter 4. It's verse 14, 15, and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, when life hurts, Jesus wept. Turn to him. So this is what we are to believe, that he is one who has faced everything we will face. And we see that in John. Turn over to uh, Romans chapter 12. That's not where I wanted to go. Well, I can't remember where this verse is. Um, so what do we do um, based on that belief? That we have a high priest who has faced everything we face, that we can go to him in our time of need uh, for an abundance of grace. 
Well, we turn to him. And then we take his grace and share it with each other. For we have not been left alone, but we have been placed as part of his body, his people, his church, his uh, holy assembly. And so, until he comes again, we laugh with those who laugh and we weep with those who weep knowing that we cannot fix everything. So we look to him. We lean on each other. And we hope in uh, the future. Revelation 21. This is probably a passage that you uh, are all very familiar with. gives a description of what we're waiting for. Verse 3 and 4. Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Won't that be a great day? He will wipe away every tear because he will fix every problem. Sin will be gone. And so every result of sin will be gone with it. Until then, we cry out to him. Come quickly, Jesus. We need you. Come now and fix this. But we do that as people who know that his heart is with us and that he is the resurrection and the life. And we can trust him. Let us pray.